Welcome back to the Cross-Border Interview Podcast, the ballot box, a semi-regular episode of the show where we talk about the biggest political news stories of the week here in Alberta and around Canada and from time to time around the world. This week, for our last time for a while, we have the incredible, the awesome, the conservative like me podcast host, Jennifer Sanford, back in the studio. Well, back in her studio, back in my studio, back on air. Thank you so much for doing this, Jennifer. Greatly appreciate it. Oh, it's so great to be here. I can't wait to dive into this week's theme. I think I'm the most excited of all the weeks. Yes, I'm always looking at how to promote a show when we like what what's the title of the show going to be and then I take it from whatever the first topic we're going to be talking about and this week we are talking about one of the biggest political news stories I think Alberta has been facing not over the last year not over the last day not even the last week but since the con- uh, constitution was ratified in 1982 and even before that 1950 I just want to make sure I got the right here 1957 was when the equalization formula was first implemented And we're going to be talking about equalization, 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 equalization. Um, Earlier in the Jason Kenney's mandate, he put together a blue ribbon commission. Yet again, I'm stealing a word from the West Wing right now. The Alberta's Fair Deal panel to go across uh, Alberta to talk about what Alberta wants from the federal government. And in the report uh, released last March, there were 35 recommendations to the provincial government. And one of those was holding a referendum on equalization, which is part of the constitution. I think that is pretty simple explanation of equalization and why we're having a referendum in uh, October October of this year, October 18th, uh, along with the municipal elections. Um, Equalization is a very complex formula. It is something that was implemented. The current structure of equalization formula was implemented under the Stephen Harper government. Justin Trudeau has been rolling it over, rolling it over, rolling it over. And I already see a finger going up and I want Jennifer to jump in here because this is what the show is about jumping in. So go ahead. What do you want to talk about Stephen Harper about? Well, it's just, it's important to remember if we talk about the, that this formula that we have today is a conservative Stephen Harper built solution that inevitably includes Jason Kenney, because we have to remember that Jason Kenney was part of the federal infrastructure at the time that equalization was built. I just think that we forget that too quickly when we talk about equalization in this country. And Aaron O'Toole. We can't yes. forget him as well, because as much as we'd love to say the federal uh, leader hadn't had and no uh, strings attached. He was part of the Harper government in 2011 when this was passed. He he came in 2012, but he is the reason we have this as well. So I, I thank you for that clarification. And Jason Kenney does have a little bit of baggage to wear on this. Yes. Jason Kenney in the 2019 provincial election made a referendum on equalization, a key selling point for his government, a potential government under him. We are now, as of June, uh, July, uh, aware of what the question is going to be on October 18th, which is, and I'm quoting here, should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament of the Government of Canada's Committee to the Principle of Making Equalization Payments, be removed from the Constitution? End question. Um, anyone who has not read the Constitution 
probably could not tell you that the equalization payment formula was part of it uh, or the fact that it was section 36.2. This is a very pointed question. Uh, I want to start with that first before we get into actually the idea of equalization. But for a referendum like this, the question is quite poignant and simple to understand. It's a yes or no up and down ballot question. I think it was smart for him to make it so simple. What about you? Uh, This is such a fool's errand. This whole thing. <laughs> I can't. I just like how you're like, let's talk about the question. And then we'll talk about I can't extrapolate. Okay, let's, to- let's let's talk about let, let's let's go into this, because I can this see is, where Jason Kenny's pissed off at equalization payments. I can see why people are pissed off at him for not for being part of the government that implemented the current formula for equalization payments. And we're going to talk about uh, the history of it here in a few minutes. But. It is a fool's errand because this could backfire bigly in his face and that would look bad on him. Correct? Well, I it's bigger than that. It's I see it totally different. I see this as such a fool's errand and here's why. The thing that we know to be true about the Constitution Act of 1982 is that it gave power to the provinces to be able to say, hey, listen, I don't like this one thing because it disenfranchises my province. The problem is that that power is limited to just that province's ability to say it only impacts me. So, for example, Newfoundland was like, hey, hi, we would like to be Newfoundland Labrador. We like that name better. We think it's more inclusive. This does not affect anybody else. Can we get a change? And the Constitution Act said, does it affect any other province? And they said no. And so they got to be Newfoundland Labrador, period, easy. PEI was like, hey, listen, we want to strike a different deal about our transportation system because we built Confederation Bridge. So now we don't need ferry service. So we'd like to make that change. And it doesn't affect anybody else but PEI because the bridge goes to PEI. And the Constitution Act said, does it affect anybody else? And it said no. And so therefore, it becomes an amendment to the Constitution. For Jason Kenney to come forward and say, hello, Alberta alone is disenfranchised by equalization. We'd like it removed from the Constitution is going to be met by Quebec, Manitoba, PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, who all receive equalization payments to say, "Um, hi, hi, excuse me, hard pass. This directly affects our ability to manage our day to day. I mean, for Quebec, we're talking about $13.3 billion in, in money coming from other provinces. Like there's just... I just think we have to have a real conversation about how Jason Kenney is going to ask Albertans like, hey, do you want to stop giving money to other people? And we're all going to say, yeah, I think we should keep our money here. And then he's going to go, great. I agree. And then that's it. That's it. That's all that's going to happen. And then we're going to be more frustrated with this conservative government because, and I know that I got shit for saying this last week, but it's just more veneer. It's just the veneer of taking action when there's nothing that can be done about equalization. Let's be clear. If conservatives would have, if conservatives could fix equalization, they would have fixed equalization. There's only two ways forward. Would you like to hear them? (laughs) <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it because I have I have a jumping up point as well around the provinces. So let's hear your two points before I sort of jump in here. There's only two ways forward. Door number one, 
we start attacking these interprovincial transfers, which exist on top of equalization. So it's important to remember that equalization is trying to create an equity of services based on the composition of each province. And we get it like PEI and Nova Scotia, like they need health services. They need like the institutional economic power is just different. Right. And so like equalization on its on its face is, you know, trying to create equity. But then on top of that, we have these interprovincial transfers. So transfers that occur on top of that. And what I would like to see is a, is a real addressing of these additional interprovincial transfers, which we do not talk about when we talk about equalization. There is still additional movements of money that in my opinion are, are unnecessary. That's door number one. Door number two is to come to the table and say, under Bill 96, Quebec would like to have nation status. That's what they want. I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's the end of one Canada. I have a whole podcast entirely about Bill 96 and how much it will destroy really what I believe to be the fabric of Canada. The opportunity for Alberta, if they're not going to fight for nation status, is to say, fine, let Quebec have nation status. And nation status makes you exempt from equalization. And that redistributes that $13.3 billion, and we would get to keep a whole lot more of it here in Alberta. Those are your two doors that are available to you. This referendum question is just like, hey, are we all on the same page that this sucks? Like, that is not leadership. That is the veneer of leadership. And that's what bothers me about this, this issue and this referendum question in October. I think there's a third door we're forgetting here. I think Kenny has a long game and I still don't understand what that long game is. And I, 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 when I was researching about this uh, topic and learning a little bit more about this, I, I read a report from the Fraser Institute, which I've never gone on. I've probably I've heard I, I've heard about them, but I, I read a report from the Fraser Institute where it references the 1998 Supreme Court of Canada's case uh, succession reference. If a clear majority of uh, Quebec voters in the 1995 uh, or any future Quebec referendum would vote in favor of a clear question to separate from Canada, other governments would have to have a duty to negotiate in good faith. This is a, this is how Jason Kenney is going to win this. He already has five other provinces, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, uh, Ontario, who want changes to this referendum. New Brunswick, which we're going to be talking about here in a few minutes. I know they are uh, one of the provinces currently getting funding, but a former premier, Sean uh, Graham, uh, Sean Murphy, Sean Graham, one uh, former liberal premier a few terms ago, announced that by 2026, the province of New Brunswick would no longer be receiving equalization payments. So I would say that New Brunswick is probably going to be on that list as well. And Newfoundland of- as well. Newfoundland as well. Sorry. Correct. Uh, a lot of provinces right now are pissed off at Quebec, really pissed off at Quebec, <laughs> um, particularly with with a potential election coming up. There is going to be a lot of people pissed off at Quebec because they seem to always get the bigger share of the pie compared to other provinces. So if this referendum comes through, Jason Kenney can look at the other premiers who are pissed off at Quebec or other provinces and say, hey, let's sit down. Let's negotiate a fair deal. This takes Trudeau out of the equation because he is now sitting at a table with 13 other uh, territory provinces leaders and saying, hey, 
I don't think we're getting a fair share. How can we make it a fair share for everyone? And let's take Justin Trudeau out of the equation, because if Jason Kenny hates Justin Trudeau, I don't think there is a bone in anyone's body that will disagree with that statement in any way that Kenny can overstep Trudeau. He will. So he will say, hey, look. 50 plus 1% of my population wants a better deal. Let's negotiate in fair, in good, good faith to talk about a fair deal for everyone. So everyone gets a better share of the pie and Alberta doesn't get left behind. That's door number three, I think. No and way. Think, that, no really. way. No way. No way. <laughs> Sorry. Hard pass on that. I just, oh my goodness. No way. Because first of all, you're the, we have a math problem here. You get BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Newfoundland. You, you still... Like, it's just not, it's not enough. The math isn't there. It's not enough. Like if they would have wanted to negotiate a fair deal, the negotiation of a fair deal would have probably been spearheaded by someone like Danny Williams, who would have, when, when, uh, when his province was taken out of equalization and when he went absolutely apeshit, it would probably have occurred at that time. There is no incentive because there's nothing on the table as like, there's no carrot there. It's no like, listen, if you don't get us w- what we want, we're going to separate or we're going to refuse to pay. Like, there's no there's no incentive for the federal government to say, listen, if I don't if I don't negotiate this fair deal with them, um, there's going to be real consequences to this country. It's simply not there. It's simply not there. If 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 it if there were a threat that we would we would already be negotiating a fair deal. It's just not there. I think there is a threat. You are seeing the rise of separatism in the Western provinces right now. And if Quebec and Ontario were smart, and I don't think Doug Ford and uh, Francis Legault are, but let's say his the people around the two premiers of the two largest provinces in this confederation are smart, they would be saying, guys, there's something happening out West we need to address. And while it may hurt us in the long run, we need to make sure we're Canadians because I think Ford has higher aspirations. I think Legault is just Legault and he wants to keep on power, keep power for the rest of his life, which is completely understandable. Every politician does, but there are politicians provincially in the premier's chairs who have higher aspirations and they see the writing on the wall. 11% of people in the latest poll want to separate and go to the wild Rose independence party. Yet again, that's 11%. That means absolutely Jack squad, but 11% in a year is a lot. Ah, you know what? That's, that's Kenny rebuke. I'm not, I'm not giving any credibility to that 11%. Listen to me. Listen, if, we wanted to have a, if we wanted to have a real, a real aggressive approach on this, then the question should have been, uh, should section 36.2 of the constitution act of 1982 Canada parliament and can and the government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments be removed from the constitution. And would you be willing to separate from the constitution from the confederation if it is not achieved? If you wanted to put your money where your mouth is, then the question should have been far more aggressive to test the will of Albertans. If, if you're thinking that, that, that the will is there. Well, I, I that's Kenny smart. I, I, like oh, I said, whoa, he, whoa. Be he, careful. Let that be the soundbite of this episode. Exactly. He has higher aspirations. He wants to be prime minister again. He wants to be well again, but he wants to be back in Ottawa being prime minister. This was his four year plan. Get reelected once and then go back to Ottawa, save the conservative party from itself. If he's even 
talks about separation in a question, in a referendum. If he, there's a soundbite of him saying, let's think about separation, he's done and he knows it. The provinces around him, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, would be looking at Alberta and saying, you're a lost cause. I don't care who you are. This is the carrot. This is the carrot to say, hey, guys, we're welling those separatism uh the separatism movement in the Western Canada right now, we need good faith leaders to come to the table and negotiate because we are not getting that from Canada. Trudeau is fudging this file left, right, and center. If he was smart, he would be saying on the campaign trail after the election, if reelected, a liberal government will commission everyone to get together, all the premiers to sit down and talk about this issue or the Finance minister, who is going to be Christia Freeland, probably because Mark Carney stepped down, is going to sit down with all the finance ministers <laughs> and say, how do we make this fairer for everyone and move forward from there? This is the carrot. This is the carrot of saying, hey, guys, we're doing it in good faith. We're not trying to be asses. We're not trying to be hard asses here. We are Albertans who are pissed off. How am I taking the more conservative stance on this? And you are I just, not. Listen, <laughs> listen, listen, Chris, I. I, I don't want to be hard on you because I love you, but on this issue, you are the president and the CEO of Fantasyland on this issue. There's an, He's going to go on the campaign trail and say, I saved your ass from COVID and gave you 2000 bucks a month. That's going to be the compelling thing. He's going to say, Alberta's ha- not happy. They've never been happy. I mean, there has to be some resignation here that anybody you know, east of Manitoba knows that we, that Alberta and Saskatchewan are designed by no other means in confederation than to be the workhorse of confederation. Like, like, let's just be honest. I will agree that it is designed to be the workhorse, but at the same time, at the same time, you have to give a fair shot to every province. No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't because they don't need no, you. In theory, you do, but but look at the way in which we're composed as a country. Like the election is decided before Albertans are still standing in the voting lines, right? And like it's just there's no incentive to get this equalization right. And I don't I don't even think the incentive is is there with Jason Kenney. I think it's just like like well, I asked a question. I'm doing my bare minimum, and it's not enough. It's not enough. I think we have to go back to the two doors that I presented and either say if Quebec is going to get nationhood, which it seems like they are because the federal government's every political leader has said they they're up with it. Then that's fine. Have nation status, but we won't give you equalization. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. And the other the other piece is to is to look at these interprovincial transfers equalization. Trust me, if if it was going to get fixed, it would have been fixed under Stephen Harper. And I think Jason Kenney knows that. Let's be I, honest. I he knows it, but let's be honest. At the time, there was a completely different scenario happening in this country. Oil prices were not bad. The economy was going in Alberta. You had a good conservative premier who was supportive of the conservative government with Ralph Klein, Ed Stelmack, uh, Allison Redford, whoever it was at the time. But you had a you had politicians in Alberta who were cozy with the Conservative Party. You have that now, but you have a liberal government. Danny Williams, as much as he was a progressive conservative of Newfoundland and Labrador, let's be honest, he was far from a progressive conservative of Newfoundland and Labrador. He was probably a very center 
center can, uh, candidate. And he went out and said, hey, F you, Stephen Harper, vote anyone but conservative. You do not hear that from Jason Kenney saying, Aaron O'Toole is going to be the same as Justin Trudeau. We have to vote for a different party because Aaron O'Toole will get in and Aaron O'Toole will bow down to Jason Kenney and give Jason Kenney whatever he wants. You're conflating this whole issue. You're conflating this whole issue. Quebec was prepared to separate and equalization was a way of quelling those emotions. Alberta is not prepared to make those same aggressive moves. There, equalization there is, did not just come out of nowhere in 1982. It, like it did not. People did just not say, OK, the Constitution got reformed. But the formula, the payments were happening before that. It's not like Quebec said one day, hey, we want more money. So we're going to try and separate because they didn't. They separated because they were pissed off like Albertans are. And Albertans are going to get to a point. There's going to be a tipping point probably in the next five years if rest of Canada doesn't smarten up. And I'm not advocating. For yes, separation. all 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 vocal 11 percent of them. But I, it's growing. 11 percent. Oh, <laughs> I've never How? seen you this mad. This is the I, I I'm honestly concerned that we are going to a potential referendum vote under Paul Hinman, the leader of the Wild Rose Independence Party, in the next eight years. Uh no, no, <laughs> no. It's not gonna happen. I, not gonna happen. I, I'm, I, I even wore my Disney shirt to try and be a little bit like more behaved today, <laughs> but I think it's like giving me just like an extra shot of like I don't know Stitch from Lilo and Stitch because I am pissed at this whole referendum thing. I think wow. it's a smart move on Jason Kenney's part, but also at the end of the day, the le- the other provinces have to negotiate in good faith, and that's where I would love to see. Love to see the other premiers say, no, we don't want to. Where's the good faith in that? And at what point do you break into song? Because this is totally not totally. You're totally. This is totally crazy. Totally crazy. Can we talk about something else? We're never going to agree on this. I, I, we're never going to agree on this, but I will talk about one last thing before we move into our other big topic that we have a lot to discuss. <laughs> because, you know, why not just choose one hot topic? Let's choose two hot topics of the week. Um, with the success, succession referenced by the Supreme Court of Canada, um, it does say that if a negotiation around a referendum question like this does happen, the other provinces can make amendments to that question so or ex- <laughs> i'm sure it's, i'm sure at some point there's the exercising of the notwithstanding oh right? exactly well exactly so, so. Oh, wow that was a good 25 minute spar that was, hey we haven't had one of those in a while it's a great way to yeah. end the great great four episodes that we've done um, i like that you're topic. wearing your disney i like that you're wearing a disney shirt because you're really peter pan on this issue <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're you're in Narnia right now because I I don't see how you do not see the people who are pissed off in this province. And that's at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. People are pissed off and not just at Justin Trudeau, but at Stephen Harper as well. And Jason Kenney. I was going to say Jason Kenney, but for some reason I slipped and I said uh, Stephen Harper, but Jason Kenney about this formula. And this is one step to move to get that 
equalization formula change to help Albertans, in my opinion. And that will be my last word on it. And you can say your last word. But from Narnia, what would you like to say on it? Not going to happen. If a fair deal for Alberta was going to come, it would have come under conservative government. Jason Kenney knows it. That's why they want Aaron O'Toole. Oh, goodness. (laughs) All right, what's next? What's next? next? (laughs) This is weird when you're trying to tell me what's next. What's next? Next next is the big story out of Alberta, That another big story that out of Alberta, but this one has been uh, 18 months in the making. The end the end of COVID-19 restrictions and isolations as we know it. I was going to say the end of COVID-19, but to be to be honest, to be upfront, it's the end of quarantining for people who are sick, mandatory requirements to quarantine. It's uh, the end of contract, contact tracing. It's the end of uh, mass vaccination sites. As of August 16th, some are going to be happening next week, but the big number that we want to look at is August 16th. So earlier this week, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Chief Medical Officer of Alberta, announced in her first press conference since June, since June, that as of August 16th, people who test positive of COVID-19 will no longer be required to mandatorily isolate at all. Alberta, Albertans with symptoms will no longer be asked to be tested. After that date, either uh, they will just be required, not mandatory required, but just asked to stay home and isolate. Two weeks after that October, uh, August 16th date, COVID-19 tests will be administered at doctor's offices only. All testing sites will be decommissioned by the end of August, it sounds like. And then earlier this week, any early this week, anyone who had close contact with COVID-19 positive case will no longer be required to quarantine. This caused a shit show for those 3% of the people who use Twitter. Uh, I think there was a big, uh, big hubbub about what was going on here. But I, I see for those who were not watching this and listening to this Jennifer sort of just gave me a little glance when I said uh, Twitter so I want to give uh, Jennifer a chance to answer this question what was your initial thoughts on this announcement from Dr. Dina Henshaw and we'll talk about the back and forth between her and Chandra later but the initial thoughts well listen I think it's so ironic that we're doing this podcast and we're both not feeling well the difference (laughs) is is that We're both smart enough to know to self-isolate when we're not feeling well. I I am a fan of a couple of a couple of things here, and then I have a couple of complaints. So first of all, it's important to remember that our vaccination rates are very high, right? We're at currently, and we've got a month to go here with all before all this stuff rolls back. Uh, not a month. We got a, a, a couple of weeks. We've got seventy-seven percent of us fully vaccinated. We've got sixty-six percent of us that are half vaccinated. You know, those are pretty impressive numbers. It is very scary. I will, I will readily admit, um, you know, as you know, I'm headed to the UN in two weeks and I was remarking that there's a, there's a little announcement uh, on the UN website that says, you know, the country continues to be in a global lockdown with the exception of Alberta, Canada. Like it's just wild to kind of see my home. So, so out of lockstep with, with where everybody else is, but the important thing is, is, is not to get hinged or stuck on the drama of this. Right. I, you know, I, as you know, my father joins me on, on the conservative like me podcast. Um, 
on every episode and and he he really had a had a great thought around um you know the NDP will make this about politics doctors versus the UCP will make this about control and power uh, you know the mayors will make this about ego and Trudeau will make this about who has the biggest dick between him and Kenny right talking about their relationship and i think my father john is absolutely right here i think the important thing is to talk about the science it frustrates me that we're not talking enough about the science. And I wish that that Dr. Hinshaw's communication that she put out would have been far more focused on the science, which is to say we no longer have the data to support that these that this strategy that we have employed thus far is still is is working. Um, you know, I I I do think at some point here we have to have a real conversation about rewarding the people who are fully vaccinated. We are still focused on a deficit of how we are, are moving and, and managing ourselves as people. I'm terrified. I'll back, I'll back away. I believe that everyone should be vaccinated. I believe that this Delta variant is going to be a real problem, especially for people who I think received a lesser dose, like an AstraZeneca or some sort of version of something. I, I do think there's, there's going to be problems, but we have to transfer the self-efficacy and the ownership away from the government and back to the people. For me personally, and for you, we were talking about this before we got on air. I'm not feeling well. It could just be a common cold, but I'm smart enough to know that I'm going to stay home and I'm going to self-isolate. And I'm not doing that because the government told me to. I'm doing that because I am a thinking, breathing, articulate human being and an Albertan. And I think that we focus so much on the outliers that we're not focusing on the Albertans who are doing the right thing and inherently know how to keep themselves safe. And that's what kind of bugs me about this whole thing. <clears throat> and I do think, oh, I do think the federal government is playing politics with this thing oh. and capitalizing on people's fear. And I think, um, you know, Patty had, had, uh, had you, am I getting that right? Yeah. Um, I think she was totally out of line. I think that she should have just said, this is where we have faults in the science, but instead she chose to make it political. And when you have chief medical officers making things political, you have a really big fucking problem. So just a clarification that Patty Hadju is the federal health minister of Canada earlier this week after Dr. Dina Hinshaw released her recommendations and new changes to the health uh, protocols. Uh, Patty had the health minister had sent a letter to Dr. Dina Hinshaw saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong, basically. And I don't know the exact wordings, but I'm just saying basically she called Alberta out saying what you're doing is stupid and irresponsible because you're going to basically kill people. And I'm not saying that's what actually said, but let's be honest, that's basically the line they skirt it. Um, I, I want to talk about. A little, something that you just talked about a few seconds ago, and we weren't going to talk about it, but I'm going to I'm going to ask you anyway. Vaccinations for frontline staff. There's been a big debate over the last uh, few weeks and last few days with the current leader of the opposition in Ontario, Andrea Horvath, basically coming out and saying, "Hey, you know what? We're not going to step on charter rights, and anyone who doesn't want to because of charter rights get a vaccine. Frontline staff, education workers." does not have to. This became a basically lightning rod for NDP voters to say what the hell is going on in Ontario with the uh, Ontario NDP leader. And 
it sparked a debate on should frontline workers, should those in the healthcare field, should those in the education field get tested, get not uh, tested, but should they get the vaccine and should they be required to get it or lose their job? I, I'm going to play the conservative here because I feel like we're, there's a line that we're crossing and it's going to be a hard line that we're going to be crossing in the next few uh, months if we start requiring everyone to get a vaccine. There are people in this province, in this country, who cannot get the vaccine. I myself included. I have not gotten my first dose. I have not gotten my second dose. I can't because of my doctor's order. I'm going through chemotherapy as of Monday. I'm going through radiation next week. I can't get it. I would love to have it, but I can't. If you are requiring me because you are a medical professional on Twitter, because everyone has an MD on Twitter, it seems like, if you're requiring people to get a vaccination, then I'm sorry. I'm leaving it up to Dr. Dina Hinshaw. I'm leaving it up to the people who actually know the science and not you, the person who's blabbing their mouth at 11 o'clock at night on Twitter. There's my rant for the day. Sorry. Whoa. All he was short was saying in your parents' basement. That's the only thing he missed though. Four in the morning. Basement. So listen, let's just break, let's just break this down because it's actually very, it's actually quite simple. Mandatory vaccines are about us trying to strike a balance between the greater good and individual rights. That's it. That's it. That's as complicated as it gets. Some people say like for the greater good of herd immunity and protecting people in vulnerable populations, it's the right thing to do. The other side says we have to respect people's individual choices about what they do. And you have to consider that not only in just this country, we rely a lot on individual rights to make some of our laws and some of our policies and legislation work. I'll use a different, I'll use two examples to prove my point. On the individual rights side, we now have a second bill that's been passed for medical assistance in dying, where if you have a terminal illness or you qualify for an advance request, you can choose to end your life with a doctor at the time of your choosing. That legislation doesn't work if we don't respect individual rights, a person's ability to choose to die, to change their mind, to pick a different day, to forego the process entirely. So we have so many laws that are built upon that. A great example that I was talking about with a friend of mine was in the United States. In Vietnam, we had the draft. The draft was seen as the greater good. We're fighting armed conflict in Vietnam. So we're going to arbitrarily pick you to get your ass shot off in a part of the world you can't identify on a map. And it was seen as the greater good over the choice of individual rights. There's not a lot of people that look back on the draft and think to themselves, that was a great idea. That was a great idea that we had. It sort of carries a piece of shame with it. And certainly I'm not discounting those people that signed up for military action of their own fruition, of their own individual right. But I just think it's important to note that some of the concern that we have, and I don't have this concern because I am a conservative. I have this concern because I am a person who believes in individual rights, period. I think this is a human rights issue, not a political issue. And people who conflate it, I think should be just put in jail for something because it bugs me when we make it political. I think what I don't want to do in this country is create precedent. I don't want to create precedent that the government can decide what is best for its citizens over what citizens can decide for themselves. 
We have to appreciate in this country that we are very smart. We are educated. We are articulate. We are hardworking. Every day we make hard decisions for ourselves. We can make this decision. And this is what bothered me when they put together the, the action group, the working group for the vaccine rollout. There were no communicators there. A Jennifer Sanford or someone like me would have said, we also need to have additional metrics to fight misinformation, disinformation. We need to be looking at how do we encourage a greater cross-section of population to get vaccinated? Like that should be the goal. We have to create a different, what we call a choice architecture so that people feel like they're being nudged along into being able to say, you know what, the vaccine is right for me. And I think that that path is about rewarding people who are vaccinated, having tremendous empathy and a plan for people who cannot be vaccinated at this time and creating restrictions for people who have chosen not to be vaccinated, which let me be on the record. I think you should be vaccinated. I think all of us should be vaccinated. And I'm very happy to hear in your case that you're saying I can't, but I want to. So we have to have kind of like these three buckets of people. And it's just as simple as that. I don't know why this is so complicated. I'm I'm going to play the, I was going to say devil's advocate, but I, I want to give respect to the devil on this one. The PPC advocate here. Oh boy. People's Party of Canada, Maxime Bernier earlier this week came out and said, hey, we are not, I, I'm not vaccinated. I'm a young, healthy 55 year old man or however old he is and I'm not going to get vaccinated because I have the individual right to get vaccinated or not. How do you, as someone who believes in individual rights, say everyone should get vaccinated, but also if you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't have to because it's your individual right to get vaccinated. Listen, I want to respect people's individual rights, but I think what I was talking about before about creating this choice architecture you know, we, we, you know, we can do this a little bit differently. We can say for those who have chosen not to be vaccinated, there's different rules around how you travel interprovincially, how you fly, you know, experiences that you get to have. I mean, it's nearly impossible to police it, but at some point we have to put the focus on those people who have chosen to be good and be vaccinated. We have to start rewarding people who have done the work to vaccinate. I look at my own family we self-isolated. We stayed apart. We got vaccinated as soon as we could. We followed all the health restrictions. We wore masks, even though it was miserable. We hated it. We did it. <clears throat> and at some point that behavior needs to be rewarded. Now, the fact of, 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 of information and data, which brings us really all the way back to Dr. Hinshaw, really matters here. Maxim Bernier doesn't want to be uh, vaccinated because he's misinformed. He's misinformed that just because he's healthy doesn't mean he won't die from COVID, right? Just like people who have said, I've been fully vaxxed. I can't get COVID. Yes, you can. People every day are getting the Delta variant, right? So I think that we have to really understand the difference between respecting individual rights and also dealing with people who are aligning data and information to serve their purposes, like that's that needs to be addressed. And I would like to see Dina Henshaw as part of that announcement have said we have a lot of disinformation that still exists and we're going to be focused on that as well. Like medical disinformation is going to be a huge issue moving forward. We're going to have other problems with this. Right. Remember, once upon a time, we used to put butter on a burn like we're always evolving around the best way to help ourselves. Right. But on this case, why were there no communicators? Why were there no people who understand the human the human dynamic of how information is received and correlated included in the vaccine rollout program 
Why were those people uh, not included? Because we have a graphic designer as our health minister federally. And oh boy. <laughs> there it is. Too soon. Too, Too soon. soon. Too no, soon. it's just, just right on top. That's right on time. Actually, <laughs> that's right on time. Health minister as a graphic designer, federally, provincially, we have a lawyer health minister who's very much in favor of privatization. So let's just let's let's call it what it is. Right. We we have people in positions that should not be in positions. And yeah, it drives me crazy that somewhere Jane <laughs> Philippot, who is an infectious disease doctor, is out of the cabinet because she can't get along with her boss. Like it just drives me nuts, right? Wouldn't we have really benefited from having her in a position of leadership? Like, Um, The last topic I want to talk about here, it's still on the COVID-19, is the back and forth between Shandro and Hinshaw. Um, After this announcement, like I said, Twitter went crazy with potentially uh, burning everything Dr. Dina Hinshaw in effigy. Uh, There seemed to be crosses of her getting burnt by Twitter people all across this province. At the beginning of the pandemic, people loved her. People were all excited about her. They were wearing her face on T-shirts. And then you saw after this announcement of, what should I do with this? I went to drop off this shirt to uh, the uh, Value Village but they wouldn't take it because they didn't want it. There were jokes like that. Dr. Dina Hinshaw basically was able to see the, the good and the bad of politics. One day you're really, really good. The one, next day you're really, really bad. Um, and then you go away. That's like exactly. chapter one, two, three. Then you go away and then you're replaced by someone who the, the government wants a little bit better. But in the days leading past uh, that announcement, Dr. Dina Hinshaw said that no additional public health measures were immediately forthcoming, adding that it would be elected MLAs, not her, who would make the call on restrictions. And I'm quoting here from a, a newspaper article from uh, CBC not a newspaper, a radio interview. Those decisions are uh, by elected officials who are appropriately uh, the ones to make those decisions. The need for any additional measures is being discussed, looking, looking at the data and multiple factors that weigh into that decision. Now, that's that's a reasonable explanation from someone in her position. Hey, it's the elected officials who are making the decision. With the backlash that she was receiving, Shandro, the Minister of Finance in Alberta, did not want to let that stay. So he said in a follow-up interview the day after that the ball for any new restrictions was going to be in her court, Dr. Dina Hinshaw's. We do not right now have any options that are recommended to us by Dr. Dina Hinshaw and her office, Chandra said in a news conference. We don't have any recommendations right now from Dr. Dina Hinshaw, but we will continue to make sure she has all the resources available to make the right recommendations to the Emergency Management Cabinet Committee, and we will continue to hear those recommendations from her when those come forward with concerns she might have about community spread, end quote from Chandra. Let's be honest here. This is the political game of the century that I have never seen this government play. They are passing the buck like there's no tomorrow. They're saying, we're not the ones doing it. Hinshaw's doing it. Hinshaw's saying, we're not, I'm not the one doing it. It's the elected government officials who are doing it, that emergency management committee. What is the end game for Shandro and Hinshaw on this file of passing the buck? 
Uh, the end game is quite simple. They're playing a game of musical chairs and nobody wants to be the person left standing when the music stops. That's what's happening here. This is, this is, and emergency managers will tell you this all the time. Rolling up an emergency is, is the easy part. Rolling back, rolling down, pulling away in your recovery is the hard part. And people remember the mistakes that are made there more than they remember how you rolled it up. And Chandra as an elected official is like, Hey, I don't want to be left holding this. And Dina Hinshaw is like, I don't want to be left holding this. So both share the same goal of not wanting to be standing when the music stops. Right. And so I, you know, I think you probably see this all the time. We just rarely see it in such an overt public space. Right. We know there's some dysfunction within the government and how they work. And now they're just both making, you know, public, public statements. I, I just, you know, I would have liked to seen the level of discourse be a little bit higher to say issues related to science and evidence-based decision-making are made with the consultation of Dr. Dina Hinshaw as a, as a key member, but ultimately the elected official for health owns the accountability of how we move forward, right? Just asking more of your government to hold the discourse level higher. I'm not buying into the drama between the two. Um, I don't care, frankly. What I care about is, are we focused on evidence-based decision-making? And do we have the self-efficacy as a a society? Um, I I would I got to come back and say, I would have liked to have seen more recommendations. Like this is recommended Um, because we all have things in this rollback that we don't like. Right. I've been talking to everybody and they're like, oh, I don't like this one piece of rollback. One of the things I had hoped that we would have kept as a society would have been the idea that stay home if you don't feel well. I was hoping that that would have been like an institutional thing that we all learned forever. Right. But it seems like we're not holding on to that. Yeah, but we're not holding on to that for some reason. We're like, yeah, well, you're sick, but shop. Right. I wish we would have held on to that. Because I think we have two different camps here, right? We have the people who are very much in favor of exactly what you just said. Hey, you have, you should be staying home if you're sick. If you feel like you're under the weather, you should be staying home sick. And then in camp two, and this is the camp that I am seeing more and more, and it comes at the idea of personal uh, uh, responsibility of, I have the right to do with what I, I, I want. If I feel yeah. sick and I feel like I can go to the store and pick up something like I did five months ago or not five, five years ago, I feel like I should have the uh, my ability to do that. If I feel if I'm sick enough, I will stay home. But I have the right to uh, travel within this country. I have the right to go to the grocery store to pick up what I want, even though you could Amazon Prime anything these days, unless it's milk. But anyway, that's here or there. Sorry for the shameless plug for Amazon Prime there. But God bless those delivery drivers because they have kept this house moving. Um, But I want to say there are two camps in this situation. And they are becoming further and further a part of, yes, you need to lock down. You need, if you feel sick, you need to mandatorily stay in, uh, stay in your house for 14 days. And then the other ones like you and me, if I feel sick, I'm going to stay home, but I'm not, yep. I'm not going to get the government to tell me to stay home because it's like a five-year-old child trying to get them to do something, right? You got to stay in your room. I don't want to stay in my room. You got to stay in your room. I don't want to stay in my room. You got to stay in yeah, your room. <laughs> There is some of that. There is some of that, right? That then they do the opposite to spite you. But um, can I just ask Maxine Bernier effect? (laughs) Yes. Can I just ask when you became so conservative? Like, is you're 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 gonna have you're gonna change this podcast to conservative like Chris? Um. Here's a little secret that not a lot of people know. I've only voted liberal once in my life, and that was for myself. Wow. The truth is really coming out. Did you feel free? Did it set you free? Like, like I said in the last interview, last uh, show, 
I am more conservative than most people would assume. I, I believe in the individual right. I believe that the government should help on some things. The issue that I have with the conservative party is their social stance on social issues. It right. seems to be taking over by, like I would have voted for Stephen Harper, but Stephen Harper was surrounded by anti-Islamophobes. Uh, Anti-abortion, anti- yeah. Anti-abortion, anti-gay people. I am I, I am a small PC conservative. If Joe Clark yeah. was pre, a prime minister tomorrow, Sign me up. Where's the, where's the membership form? I will be a Joe Clark. If Peter McKay was the leader, damn right, I'd be going out door knocking for the progressive conservatives. But Aaron O'Toole is Aaron O'Toole, and Aaron O'Toole is a social conservative in sheep's clothes, in uh, non-social so, social conservative sheep, uh, clothing. He is there to win the Toronto, but with the abortion debate, he just opened up in New Brunswick. He has lost Toronto for the rest of it. <laughs> Well, we got to talk about that at some point. Not today, yeah. but we got to talk about that. What, me being conservative? <laughs> all of it. All of it. I think the, the most of this country is conservative at heart. We really are in the center of the political spectrum as a country. And it's just, pro- it's just problematic to me that we don't have representation there. You can learn it's all about that by listening yeah. to my podcast. Conservative Like Me podcast. Conservative Like Me. Found on Spotify or Apple Podcast or wherever you wherever get your, your podcast. Yes, sir. <laughs> Um, we could go on for a lot longer, but like I said at the beginning of the interview, before the pre-interview, I said I have a husband who is leaving me for a few days to go travel for work, so I have to go say goodbye, goodbyes to him. But Jennifer, thank you so much for this fun, fun, actually engaging, sparring debate, which we have not had in a long time. Yeah, I'm so sorry. You're so wrong on so many issues, but thanks for having me. <laughs> Well, um, for my listeners, to my viewers, uh, I will be back next Friday with another episode of The Ballot Box talking about the biggest political news stories. Jennifer is not. She is going to be getting ready for her big travels because I think the following Wednesday she leaves, the 19th, if I'm not mistaken, she's out of here. That's so correct. She probably needs one weekend with her family where I'm not waking her up at seven o'clock in the morning to get ready for eight o'clock. But let's be honest, she's probably up at like five o'clock to get ready for eight o'clock, but I'm not sure. That is true. That is very true. <laughs> That's very true. Jennifer, these have been an amazing last four weeks. I'm looking forward to when the, oh, for, this is this is how live we are right now. Canada just won gold. Hey, go Canada. Soccer, in soccer against Sweden. So good for Canada. That is the best way to end a show. Absolutely. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for doing this. Like I said to my listeners and my viewers, we will be back next week with another guest, an interim guest host until Jennifer gets settled in uh, the UN across the pond. But thank you so much. And I look forward to the election call on Tuesday morning. I mean, I mean, what did I say? Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm I'm in it for a steak dinner. I can tell. (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much, guys. Have yourself an excellent day. Thanks, Jen. Take care. The Cross-Border Interview Podcast was produced and edited by Miranda Brown & Associates. Yeah.